Good morning. Good. I got some response. That's always a good thing, you know, when you're addressing people is to get a response early. As a psychologist, one of the things I look for is responses in people. And when you do that kind of a thing and and you respond by, um, you know, saying good morning and response back, what happens in your brain is that there's actually a little bit of oxytocin that goes, whoo Uh, And it wakes you up a little bit. And then we start engaging, and it starts to work. I want to say hello from um, your friends and colleagues, your peers at Frontier Lodge. I was able to be there this last weekend, uh, checking in on the Christian Formation students that that were there. They're out on their specialization this coming week. So the, the people who are doing mountain biking are somewhere around Golden. The people who are doing rock climbing are in Revelstoke. And the people who are doing, uh, what's the, uh, canoeing are somewhere down, floating down the Kootenai River today. And uh, the people, the CF kids are, uh, are taking it easy. They're in a uh, retreat just the other side of Jasper National Park. Uh, so um, pray for them. It's cold <laughs> where they're at and they're sleeping in tents and they're getting wet. So we've in this series, had an introduction from President Mark. And two weeks ago, we had an excellent word from Pastor Dan Cochran from Crossroads Church in Red Deer. Uh, This week, um, I'm going to uh, extend the framework. Now, did we get to there? No. There we go. I'm going to extend the framework that um, President Mark talked about. He talked about the Bible as being the framework that draws our attention to the picture, the picture of who God is, the picture of what God does, and the picture of who is humanity. I want to take the liberty of extending that analogy And I believe that these first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis set often called the primeval prologue, as you know, you've been in Dr. Roberts' classes, most of you have heard this, the primeval prologue sets a theological framework for viewing the whole of Scripture. And it uses four overarching themes throughout these 11 chapters to address that very thing. Well, two weeks ago, Pastor Dan did a wonderful job of introducing us to Genesis 1 and 2, the nature and the implications of the fact of God's creation and his creative works and power. And he talked about Genesis 1 being both a mystery and showing majesty, a mystery in terms of we don't know the timing and the days. Majesty in the terms of showing who this marvelous creator is. A song of creation. A focus on who did it, not necessarily how it was done. God's word is powerful, we we heard. He said it, and it came into being. God created, and it was good. It fulfilled his purposes. It fulfilled his ideas and plans and his desire, all shown in creation. And we found out that man is the apex of God's creation. 
made in the image of God, breathed into with the life of God, with the breath of God. The created world was wholesome and had good order. No, I'm not sure where I am. Ah, I should be one more there. Okay. God saw it all. In fact, he said it was very good. Very good. In contrast to chapters one, to chapter one, chapters two and three, however, address the question of why things exist in a ruined condition. Subject to physical and moral evil. And so we're faced with this issue of the problem of sin. Chapters two and three are completely dominated by this problem. How can this, how can we reconcile this current condition with God's goodness and righteousness and truth? All that comes from Him. And so in the midst of that garden, there were two trees. The tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And we get the idea that the second tree must symbolize the right of complete freedom of choice over good and evil. But Adam doubts God's word. And then he doubts God's goodness. And the first humans, by eating of the tree of the knowledge of the good and evil, set their desires to be as God by determining for themselves what's good and what's bad, by establishing their own moral autonomy over good and evil. And what that did, it literally usurped it from God's prerogative. Where before all had been harmony and intimacy, there's now shame at nakedness. There's a flight and a fleeing from the presence of God. And we begin to see that sin doesn't unite, but it divides. And we begin to see that Adam, now a willful sinner, Losing free and open fellowship with God wrestles with evil and temptation at every level of his existence. But it doesn't stop there. The story is added with other stories and reveals the radical seriousness of sin. Humanity's second generation experiences what we call fratricide. In a jealous rage over, his, over the rejection of his offering in favor of his brother Abel's offering, Cain kills his brother even after being warned by God. And God shows up and he says, Cain, where's your brother? And Cain, with impertinence, says, am I my brother's keeper? And we begin to see sin not only moving in ever-widening circles, but we begin to see its manifestation. It's more blatant. It's more atrocious. 
And moving on, if you follow along in chapter four, the author talks about the rise of civilization. Cain becomes the first builder of cities with its organized community life and arts and crafts and metal workers and musicians and shepherds. And then you go down to verse 23 in chapter four and you run into a different kind of literary form. You run into a lyric poem. But it's a poem of vengeance, a song of vengeance. And here we have Lamech boasting to his wives about how he went out and killed a youth who struck him. And his wives are all being, you know, praising him for his cruel and barbaric valor. And so we have the fall. And then we have fratricide. Now brutal and bloody vengeance that's boasted about. And the same point is made in chapter 6, verses 1 to 4. The account of the sons of God and the daughters of men. So, And whoever you interpret the sons of God to be, the point is that there's a new level that has been reached in this rampant spread of evil. And so we read in verse 5 of chapter 6, the Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of their human heart was only evil all the time. Ha! Even after the flood, in chapter 11, there's the story of the Tower of Babel. And here we have humans building a city and a tower. But their purposes are motivated by a lust for fame and power. They say, come, let us build a city. Let's, a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we can make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we're going to be scattered over the face of the earth. This is in direct contradiction to God's command to Noah to go and multiply and spread oneself and increase yourself over the earth. And so what we have here is human society rising in rebellion to God. Sin not only is radically corrupts the individual, but it invades the corporate structures and the thoughts which has become bent on power and control. And so what we have is the primary theme that weaves through Genesis 3 through 11 is the radical seriousness of sin, which from the beginning of the rebellion of mankind has marred and stained God's good work. But it's even more sinister than that. Catch the pun? Sinister? Okay, gotcha, okay. That's sort of close to a dad joke, okay? Sin is so depraved. And get this, get this. Sin is so depraved 
that it changes the very nature of man. The very nature of who you are. Pastor Dan briefly talked about a couple of weeks ago, total depravity. And the depravity of man that scripture speaks of. And he talked about the fall. And since that fall, how we as humans have inherited both the guilt and sin nature of Adam in such a way that absolutely everything about us is affected by sin. As a result of the fall, we are not inclined or even able to wholly love and worship God with our heart and our mind and our strength, but what we're rather inclined to do is serve our own will, our desires, and reject his rule. But there are other ideas about human nature that rise in our world. Influential ideas, particularly in Western society, In the 17th century, English philosopher John Locke claimed that the mind of a child is a blank slate. Maybe you've heard the words tabula rasa, a blank slate. And he claimed that humans possess no innate tendencies and all differences among us are attributable to experience. And so adults can mold children into whatever they want them to be. Okay, that's somewhat true. And therefore, differences among adults can be explained in terms of their childhood environments. But how do you explain the behavior of an adult who had all the perfect growing up experiences, all the appropriate exposures, all the best training, all the best um, teachers? How do you explain it when they hurt others? or hurt themselves, or behave and think in ways that contradict the very things they were taught. How do you explain it? In the 18th century, Swiss philosopher Jean-Jacques Rousseau, JJ, claimed that all human beings are naturally good, and they seek out experience to help them grow. Rousseau believed that children need only nurturing and protecting from environmental situations that stop them from developing their goodness inside of them. But what happens when an adult, through the various twists and turns and hurts of life, has not had the ideal nurture and protection so that in their minds they will never reach that full potential. I know a lot of you in this room have not raised children. But if you have, or if you've even cared for them for an extended amount of time, you should know that you don't have to teach kids how to be bad. You don't have to teach them how to whine or steal or lie or argue or hit. They already know it. And if they don't know it, like all of us in this room, you can figure it out how to do it on your own. 
On the contrary, you have to teach your children to be good. How many times do you catch yourselves telling your children not to lie or to be mean to others? The confounding thing is that how many times do we find ourselves correcting their behavior that shouldn't be in something so young? <laughs> you know, like, how come? Now, now, don't mistake what I'm saying here, okay? Children are to be highly valued. Precious in God's sight. Their faith is admirable. I'm not saying that. But a child is not also born good or even neutral. Tabula rasa, nice thought, simply not true. Children are born like you. With a sin nature that they will have to battle through the rest of their life with. And it's crucial that we understand, lest we think somehow that we or our children can escape the consequences of sin by just being a good example. Or by just being, just not sinning. That doesn't work. Because we're born with this nature from which we need relief. Whenever we look at, only, at sin only as either crime or symptoms, we're really missing the essence of human nature. Whenever we take sin and only speak of it as a crime, what we've done is we've taken God out of the picture because sin is committed between a person and God. Now, crime is a sin. I'm not saying that. Crime is wrongdoing between two human beings. So if we call it crime, we've not really captured the full essence of sin if it's just between two human beings. Or if we take sin and we turn it into symptoms, we start talking about things like outward indications or predictors about heredity, about social environment, about early life choices, and all those things we have to talk about because it's part of the nurture and our growth. But if sin is only either crime or symptoms, and that's all it is, we're missing the full reality of what it really is. All sin is an affront to a holy God. All sin separates us from the fellowship of God. The wages of sin is death. And get this, all of us are guilty of sin. And so, in chapter 6, the Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth and that every inclination <clears throat> Excuse me. And that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. And the Lord regretted. Wow. That he had made human beings. 
and his heart was deeply troubled. As a father, I don't know how you get to that state with your kids. I can't imagine the depth of hurt. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth. Wow. And his heart was deeply troubled, so the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created, and with them the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground, for I regret that I have made them. Wow. Imagine a father doing that. The reason he needed to be deep, deep, deep. How egregious is sin? In each of these narratives, God's judgment meets human sin. In the story of Eden, excuse me, In the story of Eden, first we have the serpent and then the man and then the woman being judged by God. And for each of them, each judgment is, is the state in which they must live in this sinful, fallen condition that now characterizes the world. As further judgment upon the sin... Of the man and the woman, God expels them both from the garden and bars them from ever entering back in. And so we have humanity on its own, out there, with no way back to fellowship with God. The flood story is the most terrifying expression of human sin that brings God's judgment. This is not a light-hearted children's story about animals going up a gangplank into the ark. This is a story of nature and its forces. And for the ancients, this realm of reality affected their very life and existence. We know what it's like a little bit with the floods and the fires and how devastating that can be. And this passage is the template or the paradigm of divine judgment on mankind's sin. The end of this prologue, we see too God's judgment confronting the sins of corporate humanity in the Tower of Babel. To meet the threat of evil that... uh, evil's potential in this collective existence, God now scatters them by confusing their language. God now breaks them into countless nations and state. And so when we come to the end of this primeval prologue in chapter 11, mankind is alienated and separated by sin from God and from one another in a broken world 
of enmity and death. Individual against individual. Social element against social element. Nation against nation. So how do we deal with this? How do we move from here? A couple of weeks ago, Pastor Dan talked about it. Let's watch a minute clip of what he said. Whoops. And that tell is. me what you think it says about God. You, you could come up with a whole list of things. I, I guess I just want to give you two. The first thing that I got when I read these two chapters is God is unmistakably personal. Unmistakably personal. And he exists in relationship. Let us make man. Uh, if, you, if you got back to the the DNA, the core DNA, the center of everything. It's not a big bang or a black hole. At the center of everything, there's a relationship. There's a relationship. And you have this unmistakably personal God who exists in relationship and who actually holds everything together. Absolutely everything that is and exists, including you and me, owes its existence to him. And if for one second he took his hand off it, it would blow apart. Um, we owe our very existence to him. Over the years, songwriters have talked about relationship. So I, when I was growing up, there was this song. You're going to hear the first bit of it here in a minute or two. You can hum along if you want, because some of you, my mid-vintage, actually... A lot of you will, because you're sort of retro kind of dudes, aren't you? Yeah. <laughs> you, you'll, rec you'll recognize it. And if you want to hum along, but I want you to listen to the words and watch the words, okay? Give it a try. I can think of younger days When living for my life Was everything a man could want to do I could never see tomorrow I was never told about the sorrow Stop the rain from falling down How can you stop The sun from shining What makes the world go
You recognize the song? How many? Yeah? Good, okay. Some of you are culturally with it. When, yeah, your dad, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. You don't realize that culturally the way you're supposed to deal with it is when he comes to that course and Barry Gibbs goes into that falsetto, oh, oh, ha, when he goes into that kind of a thing, all the girls are supposed to go, oh. <laughs> but how can you stop the rain from falling down? You can't. It's hopeless. How can you stop the sun from shining? You can't. It's hopeless. How can you mend this broken man? You can't. It's hopeless. How can you deal with the depravity of sinful nature? You can't. It's hopeless. But praise God, there's a fourth theological theme that shows itself up. God's supporting mercy and sustaining grace in the Eden story. For you realize that the penalty that was prescribed for eating that forbidden fruit was death that very day. Like God shows his mercy and his grace in that death now, though still certain, is postponed to an unspecified time down the road. And the flood story, although the supreme example of God's judgment on human sin evidences his preserving grace. At the end of the story, we get a glimpse into God's heart. In, in verse 20 in chapter 8, then Noah built an altar to the Lord and taking some of all the clean animals and clean birds, he sacrificed burnt offerings on it. The Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and said in his heart, never again will I curse the ground because of humans even though every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood. And never again will I destroy all living creatures as I have done. As long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest and cold and heat and summer and winter and day and night will never cease. God's preserving grace and mercy. But strangely... This theme is missing in the last account, the story about the Tower of Babel. It concludes with God's judgment on mankind. But there's no word of mercy and grace. And so we're left wondering, have God's mercy and grace been exhausted has God rejected the nations forever? But in chapter 11, what we have is that we stand at the point where the primeval history joins sacred history. And the desperate problem of, the, of human sin so poignantly portrayed 
in the first 11 chapters is solved by God's mercy and grace that begins with the promise to Abraham but doesn't come till fruition until its completion in the son of Abraham whose death and resurrection provides the way. The ultimate victory over sin and death. Praise God. Meanwhile, today we live with a sign of God's mercy and all sufficient grace, a sign given to Noah and to all mankind. God said, whenever the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and all living creatures of every kind on the earth. We sang a song that I'd like us to repeat the words as we close. I want you to realize the depth and the depravity of our human sin nature. But I want you to be overwhelmed by his mercy and his grace. So let's stand. By the way, this is, I have to give credit here. This is a, my, wife's, my wife's picture. Okay. And I want us to read this, okay? I don't want us to sing it. You may have a, a tune that goes through your thoughts because we sang it earlier. But I want us to read it and just acknowledge the words in our hearts, okay? Think through it. What love, say it with me. Let's say it together. What love could remember no wrongs we have done. Omniscient, all-knowing, he counts not their sum. Thrown into a sea without bottom or shore. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. Oh, sorry. How do I go back? Take me back. Thank you. What patience would wait as we constantly roam. What father so tender is calling us home. He welcomes the weakest, the vilest, the poor. Our sins, they are many. What riches of kindness he lavished on us. His blood was the payment. His life was the cost. We stood neath a debt we could never afford. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. Praise the Lord. His mercy is more. Stronger than darkness, new every morn. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. Amen? Go in peace.